Hey, this is Wolf Hoffman from Accept, and I want you to focus on metal. Hey, Metalhead, Scott Thompson here, welcoming you to, again, your weekly dose of Focus on Metal. Very, very busy show this week. Got two great guests, lots of audio, so not a lot of time for other chit-chat. And the first victim in the chamber this week is a guest we've had on before, Ron Keel. And Ron is uh, just put out his brand new one. It's called South by South Dakota. And he is on board to talk about that, as well as, you know, what's been going on with touring, what the expectations are for the rest of the year. And way back, I don't know how many episodes ago, Richie and I were talking about, you know, promoters and show cancellations and things like that. So Richie took the opportunity to talk to Ron about the uh, the deal that happened in Australia, because they were actually there. So we also have that. So lots of good discussion with Ron Keel this week. And after that, we're going to have a conversation with Mitch Perry. I was really excited when Richie told me that he was going to be uh, talking to Mitch because this guy has been around for a while, done all kinds of great stuff. I mean, he's played with with Shanker. He's been involved with Quiet Riot, Steeler, uh, just uh, all kinds of bands. The guy has been in, and uh, you can even see him on some of uh, Bob Nalbandian's Inside Metal series as well, as Mitch talks about stories from back in the old days. In fact, uh, no less than Eddie Van Halen cites uh, Mitch as an influence. So Mitch has a brand new album, got delayed with all this COVID crap going on, but it's called Music Box. And the first single from the Mitch Perry group off of that one is called Believe, and that's available for you to uh, see and listen to up on YouTube. But right now, hang here so you can uh, hear Mitch talk about what he's been up to, what happened with Music Box, what the plans are, and some other stories as well, because why not? you got a legend on the show, right? So what do you say we kick it off with Richie's chat with the metal cowboy, Ron Keel. Hello, Richie. Hey, Ron. How you doing? I'm great, man. How are you? You're bang on time. I love it. Well, that's that's the plan. <laughs> so where where are you? I'm at home in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, the wild, wild Midwest. And I think everybody's at home. Yeah, or they should be, I guess, uh, if, if you're following orders, which I don't like to do, but I do love working from home, producing my radio show, doing interviews like this one, and uh, writing songs and taking care of business. So I, I am uh, glad to be home for a while and... Wishing I could get back out on the road at some point this summer, but we'll see. What's the longest stretch you've had, Ron, at home without playing a show? Wow. A um, couple of months, maybe. Uh, I try and stay as busy as possible and stay active, even in the winter months when it's not touring season with uh, some solo acoustic gigs and some travel dates. But I was very lucky that Earlier this year, I was able to go to uh, the Monsters of Rock cruise and play the, the cruise in Cozumel and Belize and do the cruise gig with all of my peers, Tesla and, and all those other great bands that are on the Monsters of Rock cruise. And then I went straight from there to Australia for my first ever tour of Australia, five shows and uh, just a great time and an amazing experience. And then we got home about seven or 10 days before the international travel ban set in and we've been home ever since but um, it's going to be uh, it's going to be an interesting summer with how 
some of the touring plans are developing. It's out of my control, and I just want to keep doing what I do, releasing a new album and entertaining my fans online as much as I possibly can. Hmm. Ron, I wanted to bring up the, the Australian trip um, because I was following that from afar, and you know there was a lot of controversy with it. A lot of bands pulled out because of money. Um, were you actually there when all of that happened and the bands decided not to come? I was the first one there, and I was the last to leave, yes. Uh, and uh, I don't think it was about money. Uh, far be it from me to get into any of my friends' business, whether my friends in XYZ or Firehouse or Kipwing or whoever. Uh, and I was communicating with, with many of the other bands on the bill because I was there first. I came over early to rehearse with my Australian musicians, and I was there for all five shows. Uh, I don't think anybody pulled out because of the money because I believe that everybody got paid. And I know that even the bands that pulled out, quote, because of the money, they got their deposit, which is, you know, half your money up front, like I did. Controversy, yes, but an amazing experience, also yes, because the, uh, you know, the, the shows were great. I was out on tour with Enough's Enough, Janet Gardner from Vixen, and, uh-huh. uh, and my band, and... The shows were fantastic. I got paid. I had the time of my life. It took really good care of me. And uh, like I said, I don't want to interfere with or even get into the other band's business, What, why they made their decisions. I can guarantee you I made the right decision to go there, to play the shows, to stick it out, to kick ass and to rock out with uh, all the fans in Australia that had been waiting for decades literally to to see me live and i've been waiting a long time to see them as well so it was a great experience hmm. ron what surprised you about australia when you went there because i I don't know whether you've ever personally gone there in the past well no i had never been there before but uh you know i wasn't really surprised i knew kind of knew what to expect i knew that i would be hanging with some extreme rock and roll fans and enjoying some good times and driving on the wrong side of the road. You know, I'd be, <laughs> what other surprises could there possibly be? You know, and, and the tour was, you talk about the money and why some of the bands pulled out. I think a lot of the, the uh, controversy stemmed from the details not being entirely taken care of in advance. For instance, your ground transportation, your hotel accommodation, sound check times, backline gear, stuff like that. But uh, there was there was some, you know, we got there and we did the rehearsals and things were great. We got on the plane to go from Melbourne to Brisbane for the first show, and we got off the plane and we didn't really have any any details. We didn't know what hotel we're staying at, or we did know the name of the venue, so we got a couple of Ubers. Me and the guys in the band, we loaded the gear and the guys into the Ubers. We went to the, to the venue and we did the gig. A lot of the details were suspect. And for instance, we didn't know when we were traveling or what time the car was going to pick us up at the hotel or uh, what the situation or sound check times would be. And these are just details, man. These, it's all going to get worked out or not, one way or the other. So the, the cowboy in me uh, just kind of went along for the ride, and, and we all did. The guys at Enough's Enough and Janet Gardner and her band, we just enjoyed the experience and went with the flow. Normally, I'm the guy who's in charge of all those details, and I got to tell my band and my crew all, you know, what hotel we're staying at, what time we're leaving tomorrow, and all these all stuff. And for, for the first time in my career, it was all alleviated off my shoulders, and I just got to enjoy the ride. 
it's kind of like climbing a mountain. I mean, when you're climbing a mountain, you don't know every rock, every foothold, every ledge, every twist and turn. You just climb the damn mountain. You get up on that thing and you put one hand and one foot in front of the other. And you go where you intended to go. And that's uh, that's the cowboy in me. I enjoyed the ride, the experience. I'd do it all over again in a heartbeat. Hmm. So, Ron, you reckon it was a big leap of faith to go? Well, isn't life itself a leap of faith? Yeah. I mean, are we all? We're not guaranteed anything. We're not guaranteed tomorrow. Uh, you know, this could be your last day on earth. You, you're not guaranteed anything. We're taking a leap of faith that we'll be alive tomorrow, that we'll be able to, to play music, that we'll be able to do what we do. And you know, there's no guarantees in this life, man. You got to get, enjoy every day, every moment, every song, like it's your last. And so, uh, for me, it was just another day at the office and an amazing experience. Hmm. D- did you get to play any of the songs on the South by South Dakota record when you were in Australia? Man, did I? That's a good question. I don't think we did, actually. We did. I had, one, I had a one-hour show, and I'm trying to give the fans the perspective or retrospective of my entire career. So we played the Keel Classics, the uh, Steeler stuff, uh, Fight Like a Band songs from last year's record, even Black Sabbath. But uh, we did not include any songs from South by South Dakota in that tour. I wish I had time, man. I could have played for two, three hours if they'd have let me, but I had one hour to condense my entire life into a, a rock show, and that's what we did. Hmm. Were all the shows electric, or were any of them acoustic? I did Serenade, the Steelers song, mm-hmm. acoustic by myself, and then the band come, came in and, and joined me for the end. I actually opened the show with a ballad, Calm Before the Storm, from the 1987 Keel album, and I've taken to doing that. It works for me. It works great. And a lot of fans and, and people in the media, they're surprised that the opening song of the show is a ballad. It's me and the piano. But it sets the show up perfectly because once that song's over, the band comes out and cranks into the hard and heavy tunes. And uh, That, uh, to me, is that, that brilliant contrast that takes the audience on a ride. And the object isn't to come out and hit them with the heaviest song right off the bat, the object is to entertain them and to give them an experience they're going to talk about and enjoy. So opening the show with Calm Before the Storm was, was I think, a great call. We've done that a few times. Did it at Keel Fest last year. Last year, uh, May 10th, we're celebrating one year since Keel Fest in Columbus, Ohio, when I had Keel, Steeler, and the Ron Keel Band all in the same show, a three-hour gig with no breaks. And the very first song of the night was Me and the Piano with Calm Before the Storm, and it worked great at that event, and I've done it a number of times since and did it on the Australian tour as well. In fact, you can hear on my Patreon page the uh, opening song of the opening night of the Australian tour, a live version of Calm Before the Storm, just me and, me and the piano. And uh, I, I, I think that it does surprise some people, but I haven't seen, seen or heard anyone complaining. Um, it, it's just, uh, to me, it's part of taking them on that ride and, given them the experience they came for and the, what they paid to see. Mm. Ron, what was your voice like after singing for three hours straight? Man, it was okay, actually. You know, I, I, I work hard, I rehearse, I, I sing often. I was in intense rehearsals before that uh, for weeks on end, doing the entire show. And, uh, you know, I, I'd like to think that uh, it, was, it was an accomplishment. Don't get me wrong, I wasn't sure. And rehearsals, one thing, the gig is an entirely different animal. And then you go on stage and you just, 
you take it one song at a time, one line at a time, one breath at a time. And I was, uh, I was okay. We actually did a gig the next night. Wow. RKB, the Ron Keel band did a headline two hour show the following night <laughs> after Keel Fest when I did the, the three hour Keel Fest gig. So we did a show the next day. Now the next day after that, I, I could have used a day off, but <laughs> you know, well, uh, I'm very proud of that accomplishment and glad the fans enjoyed it. Yeah. Ron, what's the, the hardest song in your back catalog to sing now? Well, the ones that I do in the show, I turn I do them all justice and I still do the high scream and stuff like speed demon. We do, of course, all the keel hits, the right to rock and such. Now, uh, the hardest part of it is the end of the show. For me, I want the last couple of songs to be just as strong as the first couple of songs. So that's the problem. It's not any particular song. It's maintaining that endurance, that power, that strength, that tone throughout, throughout the entire show and not falling off or slowing down or lagging or, or you know, you're still going to have your, your power and your energy for that encore, for that final uh, song of the show. So that's that's the biggest challenge about any of these gigs, is making sure that you're just as strong at the finish as you were at the start. Mm. Ron, I've been asking a lot of singers recently, um, what's the sickest they've been on stage and still been able to pull off a show? Is there is there any come to mind for you? Well, you know, I'm very lucky to, to, to be healthy. And uh, being healthy is a big part of it. Of course, there are times when you've got to get out there and do your job and you're not feeling 100% whether you've got a you know, cold or maybe the flu or, or something. But uh, I've been very lucky. Uh, I remember it even back in the 80s, probably it was worse then than it is now. Uh, but I remember there were times when, you know, you'd be sick and you'd have to kind of retrain yourself. And it happened at M3 in, uh, was it 2012, maybe 2011 when Keel was at M3 and I had entirely lost my voice, which never happens. It only happened that once in my entire 35 year career, but I, uh, I did my best to warm up and kind of retrain myself backstage to, to try and deal with that adversity. And you don't sound like you want to sound, you don't sound like you expect or usually uh, sound, but you find a way to deliver the songs and to entertain the audience and to get them the best of what you got. Whatever you got that day, you got to give it to the people, man. So uh, whether you're sick or tired or hungry or you know whatever, emotionally uh, distracted, whatever that may take, man. When, it's, when you get on stage, you've only got one shot. You got to deliver the goods. Mm. Ron, do you still get nervous before a show? I do. I get nervous before every show. I get nervous before interviews like this one. Man. I'm paying to the floor right now. I, you know, to me, that's, that's part of the excitement of it. And, you know, it is it is part of its nerves. I think that's, that's the best way to put it. But to me, that's human. That's natural. And then once you get out there and you got the mic in your hands, or we get into an interview like this, and I've got the phone in my hand, and I'm pacing the floor, and I'm talking to rock with guys like you, that it feels like you're right at home all over again. So... It's a it's a matter of adjustment. I enjoy that uh, apprehension. That it's not it's not fear, but it is nerves. Right before you go on stage, and you you know you got to dig deep and you got to do something special. That's why I'm up there. I'm not up there to, to collect a paycheck uh, or to just go through the motions. I am there to deliver my music and prove to myself, my band, and our fans that we've got something special to offer them. 
and I try and do the best I can every time I put the mic in my hands and sing the songs and, and do a show. Mm. Ron, I think it shows that you care that you get nervous. There's a certain nervous energy that you should get before delivering a show because, you know, it's you're going into the, the unknown, really. You know, you can control certain aspects of it, but you might know what the crowd's going to be like, what, what how the band is going to perform. There's some unknowns there, and nervous energy is good. And you never know. Uh, and I, I just guess it's who I am and, and how I roll. I've known guys that they could be backstage talking about sports or women or you know, whatever, and they just walk on stage and they, and they flip that switch. For me, it's a process. I've got to warm up. I've got to psych myself up. I've got to get loosened up. I've got to... I've got to get ready for that moment and that entrance on stage is to me so important. That audience's first impression of you, what they hear and see first, it's important. And uh, I, I just like, I like that part uh, of that transformation between the real guy and the guy that walks on stage and, and, and plays rock star. I, I mean, we're all human. We all feel and think and eat and sleep and, you know, we all feel good. We all feel bad. But when you get on stage and you, you, you sing that first line of that first song, you've got to make them believe that there's a reason that they paid their money to see you and, and you've got to give them their money's worth. Hmm. Ron, do you beat yourself up over your performances? Like, I constantly keep saying, I could have done better. I could have done better. I could have done better. Absolutely. And I, you could always do better. Um, and I'm my own worst critic. If I do well, I'll, I'll celebrate that moment and really be proud of my work. And I try and make each gig to where each song, each session, everything that I do, every interview, every, everything that I do, I want to do my best. And, uh, at, at that, at that time, that's the best, the, that's the best Ron Keel I can be. Uh, I don't beat myself up so much as saying, I wish I could have another shot at that. And sometimes in life you do get another shot at that whether it's uh, with re-recording some of these classic songs like Tears of Fire and The Right to Rock that we did on the Fight Like a Band album last year, or you get to go back to a town. You know, what's tough is when you know, you're in Dallas one night and you, you don't know when you're coming back, and, and you, you just you, you think about that gig, man. And I, I was not really happy with my performance last year in Dallas. Can't wait to get back to Dallas and show them who I really am. And, and you know, you'll beat yourself up. Uh, because I always do my best, but I always wish I could do better, man. That's that's, that's just the work ethic that I grew up with that I've embraced, and I always want to be the best I can be. Mm. Now, Ron, let's talk a little bit about the, the South by South Dakota album. This, to me, comes across as something you've wanted to do for a long, long time. Absolutely not, man. I had no idea we were even doing it when we did it. I didn't even know it was an album. We are in the studio just having fun and playing some tunes. We were warming up in the morning with some of these Southern rock classics like train train. And then listening back after uh, a few days, I realized we had something very special here. Uh, it was never intended to be an album. And I never intended to do a quote Southern rock tribute album. So it was entirely organic and unplanned. And wow. listening back to that, those first four or five songs, I realized, man, this is really special. And, then we started to add some of those songs that we, we figured, well, we've got to have one song from each of those iconic Southern rock heroes like Skinner, the Almond Brothers, Molly Hatchet, Blackfoot, the Outlaws, and so forth. So then we started to add some songs to, to that because I knew we had the foundation for an album, and I wanted to call it South by South Dakota. 
And I thought, what a great opportunity to pay tribute to some of the songs that we grew up listening to, some of the songs that uh, have been a part of my life and the fabric of, of our soundtrack for, for decades now. And it's also the first time that I've ever done an album where I can just brag about how great the songs are. I mean, every song of this album is absolutely killer because I didn't write them. So I can, I can <laughs> brag about it. I can, I can boast about how wonderful these tunes are. And also, it's the first time in my career that I never went in the studio with the intention of making a record. These songs are outtakes or jams or, you know, stuff that we did in the morning before the session or after the session's over and we're winding down. So every album I've done since 1983 with the Steeler album and all the Keel records and, and Fight Like a Band last year, I mean, you, you go in the studio and you're on a mission. You've got, you, you're determined to create a recording of the songs that you've written and try and uh, capture magic or lightning in a bottle. This time I, I had no, no intention of this being an album until I heard the first five or six mixes and realized, man, this is a great foundation for an album and what a perfect time to release uh, an album of songs like this that have stood the test of time that have been part of the soundtrack of our lives. And one reviewer recently called it comfort food for the ears. And I couldn't agree more. It's uh, it's a great collection of songs, well-played and well-produced and recorded, I might add. Uh, this stuff sounds great. And I, I can't get enough of it myself. I'm listening back to it now as a fan, you know, and I'm enjoying the experience of listening to South by South Dakota right along with everybody who's bought it, who's downloaded it, who's listening right now. And uh, I'm right there with you. I'm a fan, too. Yeah, it's it's interesting, Ron, that it wasn't planned. And I think it comes across because it wasn't planned as being very organic and spontaneous. I agree. And it sounds it sounds like we're having a good time. It yeah. sounds like a bunch of guys in the studio really enjoying themselves. And, uh, there are some songs on the record that have been penalized, so to speak. Some songs that we kind of just kind of made our own. And then there's some songs like Flirting with Disaster and Train Train. And, you know, we stayed very faithful to the original versions. And there was no real plan about that either. Let's take these five songs and be you know, be a cover band. Let's take these five songs and really screw them up and make them our own. There was really no plan about that. It was just depending on the tune, depending on the, the history, like Fire on the Mountain, which is uh, it's really a country song written by my buddy George McCorkle, who was a good friend of mine, the original guitarist from the Marshall Tucker Band. And George was a good friend of mine. We, we played together a lot back in the uh, 90s and the early 2000s. And we took that song and, and really heavied it up. I mean, we added the, the, the power guitars and the big drums and kind of uh, brought that song into the modern age, so to speak. But I'd like to think that George McCorkle, the guy who wrote it, is uh, listening and looking down from wherever he is, and, and I think he would approve of what we've done to that song. So we, we keyalized it in a big way and just kind of took each song one at a time. The Allman Brothers song. <laughs> Dude, we had, of course, okay, we're doing a Southern Rock tribute record. We've got to have an Allman Brothers song, right? Well, <laughs> I've been doing Ramblin' Man in my acoustic show for a long time. I love the tune. I, I played it, you know, kind of, and you know, I kind of knew it. That's <laughs> jamming in my acoustic shows. And then when it came time to do the song for real, that's a live first take what you hear on the South by South Dakota album. And that is not an easy song. You've got these amazing guitar harmonies and the keyboard uh, 
orchestration underneath those harmonies and the bass riff, and it's a really fast, up-tempo song, and all this stuff's going on in that tune, and we cut that live. Click the six. One, two, three, four. We just went. There are actually some wrong notes in those some of those riffs and guitar licks and the, how the guitars work with the keyboards and the bass. I think there's some wrong notes in there. I'm listening back to it going, it doesn't quite sound exactly right, but it sounds pretty cool. Let's just leave it because it was natural. It was, as you say, organic, and it's uh, it's rock and roll, man. And it, it is what happened that night in that studio, and now it's preserved for all time. And I think the fans are uh, enjoying it as much as I am. Mm. Ron, over the years, when you're when you're doing all a lot of your records, you hear stories about lots of bands that, for the first session or second session or whatever. They'll jam on some covers to to get a sound in the studio. Did you do that over the years anyway? One of the famous stories about our original rock and roll anthem, The Right to Rock, that's how that came about, man. We were in the studio in 1984 cutting the first Keel album, Late on the Law, and I, I finally had the chance to produce my own session, and I was in charge, and... The guys in the band were isolated. This is before we had video monitors and you know in each room. So I had one guy in the barn, one guy in the bathroom, wherever, and they're isolated with their amps. They couldn't see each other. They couldn't see me. But once we got the, the tones, you got the drum tones, you got the guitar tones, I asked the guys in the band to just jam, just play something so I can get a blend of the instruments and get a mix. Oh. And Mark Ferrari, the lead guitar player in Keel, launched into this riff and and the band started playing along and all of a sudden I looked at my engineer and I said hit record now and he hit record went red and I recorded that jam the guys in the band couldn't see each other they've never played the song before and they were just kind of making it up as they went along well a couple of months later when I met Gene Simmons and we were talking about Gene producing our major label debut. That's the only song I had. And I took that cassette tape of that jam that we recorded in the studio that day, put it in his boom box in his hotel room at the Beverly Hills Hotel, and I sang The Right to Rock in his face, because there's no vocal on the cassette tape. I sang it to him <laughs> face to face. And he hit stop on the cassette player and says, I'm going to produce this record. And we're going to start Tuesday, and the rest is history. What an amazing story about a, a song that really just happened, and it became our iconic rock and roll anthem. That's our rock and roll all night party every day, man. The Right to Rock has really been my signature career song that I still do at every show, and, and that's how it was born that day in the studio. with just a, a wild jam amongst a bunch of guys who couldn't even see each other. Uh, Ron, I just want to ask you about one of the Keel records. I don't know whether a lot of people ask you about it, but last week it was 29 years old, uh, The Final Frontier. What are your memories of writing and recording that one? I remember it all like it was yesterday, and it was the 34th anniversary of the release. Now, I did see that on social media where people will, and you know, I've done so many records now that, uh, Richie, I, I, I I can't remember the release date. Ron, Ron, I, think uh, my, I, Ron I think my math is off. <laughs> I, uh, I look <laughs> up and I see Facebook and everybody's celebrating the 34th anniversary of the, the release of The Final Frontier. The date was wrong. It's got to be wrong, by the way. It can't be April because we were on tour in February. 
with Dio in Europe, and the record was already out at that point. I know that. I don't remember the release dates, but I do remember the writing and recording process. And Gene Simmons and the guys in Keel uh, created what was our highest charting album, our biggest selling record, and uh, an album that so many people grew up listening to, and, and songs like Tears of Fire and The Final Frontier, and, and Because the Night, really proud that that album was recently remastered and reissued by Rock Candy Records. Yeah. And it, sound, it sounds uh, better than ever, and now the fans can get a copy of that CD in their hands for, you know, for next to nothing and, and, and relive those moments, and, and it sounds better than it ever did. I do remember the writing process. The a lot of that record was written on the road during the Right to Rock tour, and just at that time in 1986, to have all of our dreams come true, to be on MTV and on the cover of the magazines, and opening for Van Halen and Aerosmith and, and all my heroes. It was just an amazing time, and I'm very thankful for those opportunities, and glad that uh, we created something that still stands strong to this day. Ron, did you get a chance to sit down a lot with Ronnie James Dio? Yeah, I actually did. We did 14 countries throughout Europe that year in 86, but I had met Ronnie a few years before, of course, being a huge fan of, of Rainbow and then, of course, Black Sabbath. Ronnie came backstage when Steeler was playing in Hollywood, and my tour manager said, hey, Ronnie James Dio's outside the backstage story. He wants to meet you. I said, well, of course, too. It's Ronnie James Dio. Bring him on. <laughs> Ronnie, man. And of course, I'm 6'4". I'm, I'm a pretty tall guy. And Ronnie was not so tall. Uh, he's, you know, he's, I don't know. But he, but he was very short compared to me. And I was just so excited to meet him. I looked down at him. I said, Ronnie James Dio, I've always looked up to you. And that was how we broke the ice. Because you know, <laughs> uh, I had looked up to him. He was a larger-than-life uh, vocalist, frontman. And... We became friends. Uh, he took us on tour in 1986 to, uh, I think it was 14 countries throughout Europe on a Sacred Heart tour. The entire tour was sold out. He was the, the support act on that tour. And then now, after Ronnie's gone, and he's still with us, but uh, he passed away, uh, as, as everybody knows. And to be able to sing Die Young on the Emerald Sabbath, Black Sabbath tribute record that just came out recently, to get to pay tribute to Ronnie and sing that song with Vinnie Apathy on drums, Rudy Sarzo on bass. Uh, that That's a fantastic, uh, for me, a, a great achievement. And I'd like to think that, that Ronnie would approve if, if he heard it. I'm sure he's heard it. I'm sure he's listening from, from heaven or hell, wherever he is. I'm sure <laughs> Ronnie's listening. And, and uh, just to be able to sing that song and, and hopefully do it justice in his eyes, a huge accomplishment for me. That's a Black Sabbath tribute called Emerald Sabbath. And I got to sing not only the Ronnie James Dio song, Die Young, I got to do an Ozzy song, Hole in the Sky, and uh, an Ian Gillen song, Trashed, from Born Again. So I got to cover each one of those iconic Black Sabbath vocalists with a lot of ex-members of Sabbath and Ozzy's band on that Emerald Sabbath tribute. So I'm really proud of that. Ron, what was the hardest one to sing? Because those three singers are very different. You know, I think Trashed was the hardest song because it's so fast and there's not a chance to catch your breath. If you've heard that song Trashed from yeah. uh, Born Again, yeah. uh, it is all high, one note. There's no there's no stopping. There's no letting up. There's no time to breathe. So that one was, uh, I think, the biggest challenge. And that was the first one that I sang. I went into the studio to, to cut that vocal. And, you know, you never know. Uh, just like uh, we were talking about the shows. You know, you get nervous. 
and you walk in front in front of the microphone in the studio and you wonder, you know, what you're going to have today and what you're going to be able to do. And I, I got through the first verse and I go, okay, we got this. And very, very proud of that vocal. The Aussie tune was not as easy as you might think. Uh, Ozzy's a great singer. And back then on Holden Sky, he was singing pretty high. And uh, just to do it justice, to, to give the song what it deserves, not just to hit the notes or to get get it you know, the timing of the phrasing right, but to bring that emotion out and to to create something special when you're behind the microphone in the studio. I'm very proud of that accomplishment as well. Mm. So, Ron, you're still doing the radio show. Like, all this madness hasn't stopped you doing it. No, I love the radio show, and I love all shows, whether, you know, it's, it's a concert or whether I'm broadcasting online or on the radio. I am still putting on a show and entertaining people. That's what it's all about. I love the, uh, you know, one, one thing I love most about the radio show is the interview process. I like being interviewed by guys like you, Richie, but uh, I also love interviewing my peers and other rock stars. That's a true art, as you know, as being an interviewer, you know that it's a different game. So to, to be able to speak to some of my heroes and my peers and get some compelling content that I can put on the show and share with our listeners worldwide, huge accomplishment and it, it's a lot of work as you know but it's also it's very rewarding being able to put on a show from home in your pajamas i mean it's pretty cool uh as opposed to having to, to do the, the big road gig uh the radio show has been a blessing for me since 2012 i've been either syndicated or live on the air uh, i do enjoy that and encourage all your listeners and fans if they want to check it out you can find that and everything else that i do at ronkeel.com that's where you find the radio show, the social media, the, the online store, the links to Facebook and Twitter, and the videos and everything you want is all there, including the radio show at ronkeel.com. All right, Ron. Well, I'm going to leave you go. The album is out now. I, I really, really like it, and I am not the biggest Southern rock fan in the world. That means a lot to me, and I think there's a little bit of Southern rock in everybody, and whether it's, you know, it's, it's, it's not necessarily Southern, it's, uh, it's human. It's human rock, and these songs have stood the test of time, and we're really proud to, to share them in these new recorded versions with all our fans out there that are listening and buying the record. The response has been incredible, and thanks to people like you for sharing the news and the music with everybody out there who is hungry for some good old rock and roll. All right, Ron. Well, I'm going to leave you go. Stay safe, and hopefully one day I'll see you out there on the road. I hope so, Richie. Thanks for the time. I appreciate you, man. Yeah, take care of yourself, Ron. You too. Bye. And there you go, Richie's chat with Ron Keel. You want to find out uh, more about what's going on with Ron Keel? Like he said, head up to ronkeel.com. Or you can also go to ronkeelshop.com. And they've got a couple of bundles for that uh, South by South Dakota album up there, as well as a whole bunch of other shirts and other Ron Keel swag. And now why don't we head over to Richie's chat with the uh, legendary Mitch Perry. And I say legendary because, come on, this is a guy that Sharon wouldn't let Ozzy hang out with because she thought, based on Mitch's reputation, that he was going to be a bad influence on Ozzy. She's, she's gone. She's fucking nuts. So, with that, why don't we turn it over to Richie and Mitch Perry. Hello? Is that Mitch Perry? It is. Hey, Mitch, it's Richie here for the interview. Is now a good time? Oh, absolutely, man. How are you doing? I'm good. So, uh, how's quarantine treating you? Uh, you know, I really can't 
you know, complain. There's way worse worse places to be quarantined than uh, where we're stuck here. So, all things considered, uh, it's not awful. But yeah, obviously, uh, the big picture, it's not great. Hmm. So, what are you doing to uh, pass away the time? Are you playing a lot of guitar at home? Oh, we're doing a lot of guitar, doing a lot of talking about playing, and trying to figure out, you know, how we're going to continue to keep playing once this all starts to lift a little bit, you know? Hmm. When is the last time you played a live show? Oh, God. Uh, the last show I would have played, I played twice on the weekend. Oh, wait a minute. The last show out in the road was with Sweet, and that was in February. And then I think I played on a Sunday, uh, which would have been like the 24th or something. That that would have been the last show. Hmm. So, so who would you have been playing with now? Uh, right now, we would have been out touring with Sweet. We would have been doing some shows of my own with the Mitch Perry group. And, uh, you know, then again, I always, uh, when I'm in town, I do my Sundays here, uh, which are, <laughs> that's my favorite four hours of, uh, of the week, mm. no matter what we're doing. Um, and then I also do the ultimate jam nights on Tuesdays at the, uh, whiskey. Okay. Is that the thing that Chuck Wright, uh, organizes a lot of? Yeah, Chuck Wright. Okay. So you're, you're part of the, the main band that play, that, that plays every week. Yeah, you you know, I mean, I have I've been a part of the house band since the uh, beginning of it. Um, I've kind of been taking more uh, weekends off there than usual, just because I've been so busy with uh, the Mitch Perry group. Hmm. That must be a lot of fun playing those shows with Chuck, because from week to week, you have no idea really who's going to come up and play with you guys. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know. Uh, when we did the uh, Ultimate Jam uh, night at AM this year, we were getting ready to play Won't Get Fooled Again. And I'm standing there waiting to go on stage, and then all these steel drums, like 20 different setups of steel drums go on in front of us. And I'm like, what, what's going on? I thought we were playing. I had no idea that. We were playing uh, the whole intro to Won't Get Trolled Again on steel drums. I didn't know it until I was on stage. Hmm. Uh, has, has there ever been a, a pinch-me moment at any of those nights where you can't believe you're on stage with a, another a certain musician that you've always oh, loved? My, yeah, my favorite night was uh, doing uh, some cheap trick songs with uh, Robin Zander. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah, that that was a lot of fun. Did did you get to rehearse with him at all? Oh no, I didn't even know I was playing with him until two minutes before he showed up. <laughs> you gotta really have your chops together then to pull that off. <laughs> you know, fortunately I've been playing those cheap trick songs since I was a little kid, so uh, you know, we we knew them. Mm. So Mitch, how many guitars do you have in your house? Uh, you know, there are a bunch of guitars. I don't really, you know, I used to have a lot more than I do now. Um, and, and I kind of just, I stopped using any except my Black Les Paul unless there's a specific 
job that needs to be done. I, you need the strat to sound like a strat on a part, you know, so that's what you play or, you know, what you insert whatever guitar you want to put there. But if it's just playing music, it's going to be on my Black Les Paul. I mean, I've had the guitar for over 40 years. I bought it when it was new and, and I can do things with that guitar that I don't do with any other guitar. So it's what I use, even though there's plenty of guitars sitting around here. Mm-hmm. Is that the one you write on as well for the most part? Yeah, I mean, I'll write on whatever happens to be close at hand. I mean, I keep a couple of acoustic guitars on stands in, in different rooms in the house. And, you know, I'll just pick it. I'll pick up the guitar and play whenever something comes to mind. I, I don't usually sit down to write. It, it, it's just something will come to me and I'll I'll start jamming on it and and that's how it happens. Mm. Mitch, do you play any other instrument other than guitar? Oh yeah, I, I on this record I play quite a bit of uh Hammond B three. I mean I play you know, I've got a piano in the house as well that I'm constantly on. I probably practice piano more than I do guitar. Um but uh I you know, I can also play bass and I, I I wouldn't go so far as to say I could play drums, but I can make a snare and a, a kick drum feel great. <laughs> Hmm. So, have you ever written something on guitar and you've ended up playing on it on a record using just the, the Hammond, or, or the other way around? Well, you know, the uh, song "Believe" was written on piano, and I actually went through a long period where I played that whole intro on guitar, even though I'd written it on piano. I mean, I've eventually as you can hear on the single now, gone back to the arrangement with the keyboard started off. But, you know, it, it, you know a, a, a piece of music is just that. It can be interpreted however you want with whichever instrument you're going to use at any time. Mm. Now, how old are some of the songs on this record? Because I've, I've heard oh. the whole record. Uh, well, the oldest song, funnily enough, would be Belief which, you know, comes from about the mid-2000s. I think I wrote it somewhere around 2006, 2007. I know I I actually tried to track this a while ago. I, I, I did a project uh, where I actually had Mike Klink from Guns N' Roses producing a couple of tracks, and Believe was one of them. And I didn't like the way it was coming out, so I shelved it way back then and when we were cutting songs for this record a friend of mine reminded me about it and said it would be a shame if we didn't do it and you know right at the last minute i decided i agreed with him so we threw it into the mix but it that's the de- hmm. definite song of the bunch hmm. it, it always fascinates me when musicians tell me that the song some of the songs are old and it, because I'm always thinking, how do they remember the songs at all, that they're so old? Or do they keep them on a hard drive? Um, is there a tape lying around? And they might even forget that they have the tape. Like, Because some of these songs could be great and they just get lost, that the musician either forgets them or, or doesn't actually record anything to remember them. 
Yeah, well, you know, I, I have a theory about that. And, and, and a lot of people will use this as an excuse. I, I, I don't think it's a, it's a black and white rule, but it makes a lot of sense. And, and that is, A, if it's a memorable idea, you're going to remember it. Now, that, that doesn't mean you remember every note and every arrangement. I get that. But if I wrote a song that was pretty kick-ass, last week or 10 years ago, chances are if it really was that kick-ass, I'm going to remember it now. Hmm. So so how long, Mitch, does an idea have to percolate with you? Like, if you're not feeling a certain idea within, say, half an hour, do you just completely drop it? Yeah, you know, I mean, here's the thing. I, if I kept every idea that I came up with, I'd have, you know, three billion songs. I mean, I, I could... I, I could write you a song on, on cue. There, there's not, to me, if, if you have enough enough knowledge and, and a little imagination, there's not a lot of, you know, challenge to coming up with parts that work. The challenge is coming up with something that's unique and special and says something after, you know, I mean, after all, everything's been done and none of us are really inventing anything new here. So, you know, it's just, it's the, it's finding something that resonates and is special. You know, I, it's not just uh, having something that works. That's not good enough. So mm. for me, it has to stand, you know, it, it has to keep coming back to me for me to want to keep interested in it. Mm. Now, you said Believe was written in the mid-2000s. When you revisited that, did that song kind of set the tone for the rest of the record? Oh, no, that that song joined the rest of the record. I actually almost didn't want it uh, because we had recorded two of the other songs on the record, Wasted Time and, uh, and I Still Miss You, which are both, you know, slower songs and, and if you want ballads. Um, I, so I really didn't want to run the risk of making all the record slow, uh, but Believe was just too strong a song. And when I started thinking about the orchestration that I put on it, uh, I went, uh, we need to have it on here because it's, it's just a, another uh, color for the record. And I, I wanted the record to be diverse. You know, I wanted to have a, a style and... and and everything with the way the band plays and the way the songs are written. But I wanted to touch on all sorts of, uh, all sorts of colors and all sorts of sounds. Mm. Mitch, how easy is it? Was it for you to get, to get the band together? Are all the musicians local? Well, yes, they're all uh, local to LA. In fact, most of the band that you hear on the record is part of my Sunday lineup. Uh, The only change from the Sunday lineup is uh, Tal Bergman plays on the record, whereas uh, on Sundays we're lucky enough to have Dickie Fleet, who plays with Dan McNay um, in Jack Russell's Great White. And, you know, you'll know Dan is the bass player on the album as well. And Dan does my Sundays with me, obviously. Mm-hmm. So you're able to get them all in the studio and, and record the record live. Oh, that, that was the only way I was going to do this. Um, I, you know, there's not, there's a ton of music out there that has, is really 
really well done and really creative music. Um, however, a lot of it's leaving me cold, and, and one of the reasons for that is because of Pro Tools. It's really hard not to uh, go in and clean everything up and make it perfect. I mean, you know, it, it's human nature. We want it to be, you know, as good as it can be. However, for me, part of the music or part of the magic of the music is not just tracks being added one to another to another. Uh, it's the combustion of two of those or more of those things happening at once. And I'll guarantee you if I'm playing guitar with the drums while the drums are happening and we're both feeling the moment, there's going to be a much more dynamic connection between the two parts than if I came in at a later date and played it all over again. Um, if you get the right players doing that, it, it, it creates something that you can't approximate even with every uh, tool that we have our, at our disposal in Pro Tools. So for that reason, everything we recorded, every track, it wasn't just getting the drum track and then adding bass to it and then adding guitar. It was a live band track and everything stayed from my rhythm guitar to the bass track. And we had to go in and fix something we did. I mean, but the, the tracks and the way they feel that that was done live and with no click track as well. I didn't want things, you know, sterile to a grid. I wanted them to breathe. And, and if they sped up or slowed down, it would be natural. If it was wrong, we'd feel it. And if it was right, we'd feel it. And, you know, we felt everything you hear on the record was right. Hmm. Mitch, we have it. Mitch, I think a lot of that has to do with the chemistry you have playing with the guys live because over time, you know, you you will gel. And if you play the songs over and over again, when you actually go into the studio, it's kind of second nature to do them really quickly and to get them done right. Absolutely. And I think that's something that a lot of bands actually don't bother doing as much anymore because, you know, you just figure you'll construct the album in, in the studio. And it doesn't, it's not that that doesn't work. It does. It's just the element uh that I want to capture on my recordings I, I can't get it doing it that way hmm. it, it's just it's refreshing to hear an album like this now and for someone doing the show like myself in the last six or eight months there, like there's a, a young band called Dirty Honey that are going back to that sound the Black Crows are back together a lot of people are excited about that so they've got that that sound as well and I interviewed bassist Greg Chason I don't know whether you know him he's got a new band called Kings of Dust and they did, oh, the, they did the same thing you did they went into the studio played live off the floor recorded the record so it's great now that bands are willing to do that when they can do it the other way and fix everything well, you know, here here's the thing. Knowing that I can go in and fix everything, if I go and make a bunch of songs absolutely perfect, what am I going to have that's any different or unique from all the other perfect songs out there? I, I, I feel like your personality gets washed out a little bit in that, and, and sometimes you got to trust that. You know, I was trying to explain... 
I was trying to explain, you know, you, you take a, a band that's trying to be, you know, stonesy and they, they record their guitars out of tune. You know, they're missing the whole point. The Stones don't try and record the guitars out of tune, but what they know, what the Stones know and, and makes them so great is they recognize a great track and a great feel and a great performance. You know, whoever was producing those records, you know, Jimmy Miller back in the day or, you know, Glenn and Andy Johns, uh, you know, those guys, they all recognized when you hit a magic moment. And the guitar being out of tune didn't trump that moment. It, it wasn't what defined the moment, but it didn't it didn't trump it. And, and because of that, you you have an out of tune guitar on the track. Hmm. So, so, Mitch, when you're in the studio, you're recording, right? So you, you're big into how the how the thing sounds and how it feels. How much of a perfectionist are you though when you're playing that? You know, you might have hit it exactly right. Like, are you tough on yourself that way? I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm an absolute hypocrite when, when it comes to everybody else. It's one way, and then with me, uh, that wasn't good enough. We got to do it again. <laughs> <laughs> uh, trust me. I, I, you know, I mean, I, I suppose understanding each situation requires being able to see it from both sides. So, uh, you know, I certainly can do that, and hopefully, uh, hopefully, I go with the right call and, and follow my instinct, and it's right. You know, and on this record, I left a lot of things that I could have made. You know, I, I mean, believe me, there's like solos on the record that you know, like for "Still Miss You," it's worked out. There's not a note that's not exactly what I want. Now, on the big outro at the end of. Uh, of pack it up and go. I, I could have worked out stuff, but to me, I wanted more emotion of the moment. So I got the emotion of the, of the moment, but I always go back and, and hear it and go, Ooh, I could have done. I should, I wonder if I should have done, you know, you just have to decide and, and hope <laughs> that oh. you, uh, that you like what you uh, decided. Yeah, I think, Mitch, that Pack It Up and Go is probably one of my favorite songs on the record. Real up-tempo. It's kind of got that funky Motown vibe to it. Oh, awesome. And then it does the left turn at the end where it goes to Pink Floydville. Mm, that's what I love about this record. You can't pigeonhole it. And that, well, you know why I think that is? And I'm really proud of the fact that you can't, because, you know... When I'm listening back to it with the band, we're all like, going, "Oh, great, great!" And who does it sound like? And, and and you really can't. I mean, all of it comes from somewhere. I mean, it's not like we we wrote anything that the world hasn't heard before. But this band doesn't sound like any other band, and it's because it's basically a hodgepodge of influences. I mean, there's Humble Pie in there. I love Humble Pie. There's Pink Floyd in there. There's the Eagles in there. I mean, I call Wasted Time. You know, it's a bastard baby of uh, the Eagles and Pink Floyd. Mm -hmm. So, Mitch, you've been... I mean... Go on. Sorry. Okay. Oh, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, there's a, a bit, there's colors of pretty much 
all the, all the stuff in the classic rock that I liked as a kid. I mean, from the acoustic guitar intro to wasted time to, you know, pedal steel stuff. I mean, to whatever it's, it's all over there. And, and the whole uh, reason was to evoke the feeling of, you know, of that time of music rather than a particular band or anything. Mm-hmm. You've been, you've been with a lot of bands. Right, and some of them I want to touch on in a minute, but what band are you associated with the most? You know, it depends. I mean, I would think I would think it was MSG, but then I hear, you know, I run into people who know me from Cher. I run into people. I was with Edgar Winter for 10 years, so, you know, that, that was a long time to play with someone. Now, granted, we weren't, recording mainstream albums at the time, but we still did three albums, and one of them, uh, Winter Blues, I think is the best thing Edgar has done since, uh, you know, since uh, back in uh, the early 70s. So, you know, I'm, I'm really proud to have done that, but, you know, I also don't know that many people realize I was doing that as much as they do MSG or Heaven or any of that stuff from the 80s. Hmm. When you were young, did you want to be in one band for a long time or, or were you hoping you'd be able to do multiple bands like you've ended up doing? It, well, I would have loved to have just made it in my own, in my own band and, and been in that one band. Um, having said that, it's been an incredible ride getting and an experience getting to work with so many talented people over the years. And I mean, you know, when I sit back and, and really reflect on, on the number of people you know, I've gotten to work alongside, it, it's, it's pretty, uh, I, I'm very, uh, thankful. Hmm. Mitch, when you met Shara for the first time, uh, what surprised you about her? Uh, not, funnily enough, not much. It, the way that audition came about was was kind of strange. Um, she had already auditioned everyone in L.A., and I wasn't a part of that process. I wasn't even really on the radar, or, nor was that gig on my radar. Um, and she had apparently picked somebody and then about a week and a half before they were going to go into full dress rehearsal, she decided she wanted to switch to guitar player, but did not want to re-audition anybody. Um, so her rhythm guitar player, David Shelley, brought my name up. And I think he was seconded by Richie Sambora, who was around there. That's what I heard. And the next thing I was told is, uh, come down. It's not an audition. It's more, it's like your gig. She just wants to see that she likes you and gets along with you. And so, you know, when I went down, it was a little bit more casual because, because uh, I won't say casual, but comfortable for me because of that and she was just a really nice person and fairly down to earth and you know i wound up doing that for the next couple of years Focus. Mm-hmm. did you get a chance to show off much playing with her or was, was it, you know what I mean? Like, cause so, so oh, the, yeah, so, you did. 
Absolutely. I mean, I, you know, and there, there's some video of some of this stuff. There, there's a full concert from Jones Beach on YouTube. So, you know, I've gone back and watched it and I go, wow, she really did let us, you know, let us loose. Um, now, having said that, and it was a, a treat and it was great, but I also felt kind of like I could have been Jimi Hendrix reincarnated on that stage. And the audience that was there to see Cher wasn't going to care one way or the other. Mm. It's like um, what Nuno Betancourt said about playing at Rihanna. They're there to see Rihanna so I can shred away and they're still there to see Rihanna. And that's exactly, it's the same feeling I got playing with Cher. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that is to a T. Yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll never forget. I, I I played in front of 110,000 people with Cher at a show in Australia. And then two weeks later, was playing in front of 50 people with my own band at home. And there was a more emotional reward playing for the 50 people. Mitch, Granted, Mitch, not, not nearly as much financial, but... Yeah. Mitch, you know. how, how do you stay grounded as a guitar player? You're you're in demand. You have a lot of people are saying, you know, you're a great player. Like you're getting a gig with Cher, you're getting a gig with the MSG. Um, and sometimes that you know the ego can get get a hold of you and take you away somewhere where you're you're a little bit full of yourself. But you seem to me like you're someone who's always been pretty grounded. Well, let's you know, and I'm sure if you ask anybody at any given point, they may disagree with that. You know, but the one thing I will say now is if you've been in this business for as long as I have and and don't realize that, <laughs> you know, that you're not quite, you know, the answer to the whole world's problems, uh, you know, then you're a goofball. Huh, huh. You know, I mean, it, it, you know, I, I, at this point, like I said, I, I, I know enough sides of this business to appreciate the good ones that, you know, um, fall my way. And, and, and there have been enough, you know, sides that, you know, are not everything you want them to be that keep you, uh, keep you, uh, hopefully grounded, as you say. Mm. Did any band or musician ask you to play with them and you couldn't do it and you regretted it? Yeah, you know, it's funny. Um, I mean, there's been a couple of almost in my career. I mean, but there's some really bizarre things. Like, I mean, I remember uh, one time I was friends with Chris Squire from Yes, and we always talked about doing something. And we never wound up doing it. And one, uh, you know, I don't know if you know, I'm also car racing and I was at a race in Laguna Seca. This would be back somewhere around 93, I think. And, uh, the, uh, track announcer comes down to our pit. Then there's someone at the track office. They're, they're looking for you. It's an emergency, blah, blah, blah. Basically, it was Chris Squire, and he was at the record plant, and he was recording some stuff with uh, with uh, Matt Soren. And then he goes, "Hey, you know, they they tracked me down to the track, and they wanted to know when I could get back down to do some jamming." And uh, I go, "That would have been really cool to see what would have happened, but uh, 
it didn't. Hmm. Did um did you ever talk to Cozy Powell at all about racing? Because I know he was big into it. Yeah, I would have loved to, but no, I, I actually never got to meet Cozy. Hmm. Are there a lot of musicians that you've played with that are, are into racing? No, not really. Um, and the reason I'm into racing uh, has nothing to do with music. I grew up around it. My dad raced. Yeah. Actually, I, I lived in Europe when I was a kid because my dad was racing Formula 3. So I, I lived in London uh, from 71 till 74. Mm-hmm. Mitch, I want to ask you just for a minute or two with the perfect timing record. I'm a massive fan of that album. Um did you track any of that in Denmark, or was it all done in L.A.? No, no, it was tracked in Denmark. I wasn't part of the album when it was tracked. Um, when they came to L.A. to do overdubs and mix is when I ran into Michael. And Michael, this is a funny story. I was at the apartment complex that he was staying at. I, I was hanging out with Pete Way. I was almost going to join Wasted at the time. And um, Michael and I knew each other because we shared the same manager, David Krebs. And, and he had come down to the studio when I was recording Knocking on Heaven's Door with Heaven. And I played keyboards on them. So he came up and asked, you know, I'm in the pool. And he says, hey, Mitch, what are you doing? Uh, is it, we're looking for a guitar player, keyboard player. Um, I go, yeah, I'll kill her. He goes, well, do you want to, I know you play keyboards, so you want to try? And I go, well, I really don't want to play rhythm all night. And he, he says, well, you know, if I know you do the tapping stuff. He goes, I think people want to hear that. He goes, but I don't do it. As long as you don't sound like me, maybe this could work. And he goes, you want to come down to the studio? and try something I'm like this sounds great when you want to do that he goes what are you doing now i go swimming <laughs> he goes, well, <laughs> I, you know i i literally got out of the pool went upstairs got my guitar and michael and i drove down to sound city and at the studio was andy johns and robin mccauley and Olaf schroeder who was the uh, german manager and uh None of those guys know who I am. And Michael says, hey, everybody, hey, this is Mitch. She's going to play the solo on Give Me Your Love. <laughs> they look at Michael like he's crazy and take him out of the room. And I'm sitting there by myself for about 20 minutes going, oh, well, that was close. <laughs> it would have been nice, but oh, well. Uh, but as, as you know, I ended up playing this stuff on the record and joined the band for uh, a couple of years, which was a great time to be a part of that. I mean, any time was for me because Michael's been one of my favorite guitar players since I started playing guitar. Oh. Um, so it was a treat just to be alongside him in that. And, and believe me, I learned a lot from playing with him. Um, so that was great. But to, at the time I was with them, I mean, we were on the road for over a year, and the only three bands we were touring with were Whitesnake, Def Leppard, and Rush. And this was in 87 and 88, so it, it was a time to be doing that. Hmm. Um, what did you think of Andy Johns? Because I've spoken to a lot of musicians who've actually, you know, recorded with him, and he's supposed, he, they said he was a larger-than-life character. 
He was larger than life. And you know, it's funny, I was talking with Pat Small uh, yesterday, and we took, we started talking about Andy. And, and, and the thing about Andy, I mean, as crazy as he could be, he totally, totally understood music as well as anyone I knew or ever met. Um, and he also had ears that were impeccable. I remember I was doing a session for a guy named Willie Bass, and, and James Kotek was uh, drumming on the session, and he was going to produce it. And he was late to uh, the session, and Willie, you know, wanted to get things started, so we started running the session without Andy. And Willie went and made a couple of adjustments to a mic on the drum set. Well, about a half an hour after that, Andy comes in, sits down, listens to what we're doing. And halfway through the first, you know, listen, he stops and he says, hey, something happened to the mic on the drums. Let me go outside. Yeah, something moved. <laughs> I mean, he, 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 I couldn't believe it. And, uh, you know, I mean, that that's just the level of how sharp the guy was. Mm. Mitch, when you were out with Rush, um, did you get a chance to sit down with Neil Peart at all? I, I met them and, you know, say hello as we passed each other in the hallway, but I never really uh, spent any time with those guys. Mm. What about the Whitesnake guys? Oh, you know, I, I was actually playing with Rudy and Tommy before they did the uh, Whitesnake gig, so... Yeah, that that was pretty much. Uh, it felt like home. You know, I'd known uh, I'd known Vivian for since he'd gotten out to L.A. to play with Dio, and, and like I said, I'd played with Rudy and Tommy, and um, you know, so it was kind of being with friends. Hmm. What about the Leopard guys? Oh, they were all great guys. I mean, I, I didn't know them until that tour, but you know, it's it's an awesome time to uh, tour with them and a lot of fun. And it 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 was funny that I did that in 1987, and in 2012 I went back out with Leopard when I played with uh, Lita Ford. We went out with them and Poison for about eight months. Hmm. Hmm. So. The Bad Boys record you did with Paul Shartino and, and Sean McNabb, um, that was just timing, was it, that it, did, that, that it didn't break more than anything else? Well, it, yeah, it could have been timing. Uh, I mean, you know, the band for me, because Bad Boys and 7% Solution, which was Sean and myself with Ralph Sainz from... Uh, who's Michael Starr from uh, Steel Panther. Um, basically, it was the same band. We just switched uh, singers from Paul to Ralph. And when we got Ralph, I, th I mean, I thought it was great with Paul. I thought it was beyond great with Ralph. And, you know, I that was definitely a case of uh, a bad timing. I, I ended up putting the the 7% Solution stuff out as a Mitch Perry release. And for the inside of the liner notes, I um, used uh, all the rejection letters we got from record companies at the time. And, and everything was, 
you know, hey, this is great, but it's not what we're looking for at this moment. You know, you look at the success that Ralph's had with, you know, Steel Panther. I mean, you can't fault what a great front man he is. And, you know, we had that with 7% Solution, but at the wrong time. Hmm. Mitch, do you regret um, going out with Rash with Bobby Blotzer, looking back now? <laughs> well, yeah, you know... I don't regret it because it didn't really change my career or anything. I didn't really tell anyone I was doing it. I never really, uh, I never alluded to being in rat. I went out and, uh, did some gigs that I got paid well to do, which is what I do as a musician. Do I think I was ever in rat? Absolutely not. So do you want to give out all the social media sites where people can buy the record or get in touch with you? Yeah, well, there's MitchPerry.com, you know, and then please definitely go to our YouTube, uh, you know, Mitch Perry Group, and please subscribe to that. Uh, there's all sorts of whack videos throughout the years uh, that are on our YouTube, so you want to do that. And then, of course, you know, you can get the uh, album on iTunes or Amazon, any of those places, or you go to our website and... As soon as uh, the pressing plant reopens, we will have hard copies of uh, CDs or vinyl if you want. Nice. Uh, nice. Yeah. Well, Mitch, it's been a pleasure. Um, hopefully, you'll get up to Boston way and I'll be able to say hello to you. Ah, well, likewise, and thanks again. And, uh, you know, uh, just stay safe uh, with all the wackiness going on and uh, look forward to seeing you soon. Yep. All right, Mitch. Have a good rest of the day. Take care. All right. Bye. So glad Richie dug into some of the other history with Mitch on that one as well, because, uh, you know, the guy has a whole bunch of stories, lots to talk about. He's probably one of those guys we could probably have on this show for two hours plus and still not even begin to mine all of the great history that that guy's experienced in uh, in rock and metal. And if you want to keep up with Mitch, besides the usual social media stuff, there's always uh, MitchPerry.us which is his uh, main website. So we got lots more great stuff on the way for you coming up in June. We've got a talk with uh, black and blue guitarist Brandon Cook. We've also got a long chat with uh, Mike Gilbert, Flotsam and Jetsam, talking all about when the storm comes down. We got another lengthy one with Mark Slaughter, all about the uh, first Slaughter album. So there's just three things that are already... uh, in the chamber ready for june and we've even got some other audio that we've done that's uh even back from like november and december we've yet to run but they're really not you know kind of a time-based thing like like this week's show you know where ron's got the new album out mitch has got his new album out we want to be able to match the promotion up with the release dates as much as possible so that's why we dive in uh, sometimes and totally switch gears because you know part of this whole thing besides bringing all this stuff to you guys is also trying to help the artists trying to help the the hard rock and metal community get the word out about stuff so thanks for listening to us for another week and like i said we'll be back again next week with more great stuff i'm not sure what yet but like you just uh, heard a laundry list of stuff to choose from and something else could just drop into our laps between now and then as well and that's what we're gonna run just never know but uh for this week that's it there ain't no more stick a fork in it this puppy is done so for myself richie and everybody else here at focus on metal be safe out there and as always remember focus on metal everything else is insignificant 
Still here? It's over. Go home.